we want to turn our attention now to God's Word. Daniel chapter 2 is where we're at today. Daniel chapter 2. I encourage you to turn there in your Bible. If you don't have one, you can borrow one of ours, the black book, under one of the chairs in front of you. Daniel chapter 2. You know, one of the things that people long for in this life is security. They want to know that their present and their future is safe. And some people uh, find, well, everybody finds security in all different kinds of things. Some people find it in their investments and their portfolios. They, they have set money aside. They have put it in stocks and bonds and whatever else, and they are trusting that to keep them secure now in the future. Others find security in their social standing. How are they uh, viewed at work and among their friends? What kind of neighborhood do they live in? Some people find great comfort and security in knowing they have achieved a certain status in life. Others, uh, frankly, find security in their guns. Uh, I have a pastor friend that, I've, based upon what he has in his gun collection, I've always said, if Red Dawn happens, if the commies come, I'm driving to his house. Okay? Uh, in the 80s, it was very popular, a bumper sticker that I enjoyed that said, Security by Smith & Wesson. Uh, there's some truth in that. Uh, and some people place great security and value in that. Others, in fact, many others in this country especially, look to government as their source of security. And they become quite fretful, quite upset when the people they voted for are not in power. And it's only when their party or the people they've decided are the best to lead us, when they are actually elected that they then feel safe and secure in this country. Well, this morning as we look to Daniel chapter 2 in this passage, we will see there is only one place where true security can be found. And frankly, it's not in any of these things or many others that we can imagine. What we have before us is a story of angst and intrigue. It's a story of wisdom and folly. And above all, it is the story of the rise and fall of many, many kingdoms. And what we see ultimately is that there is only one kingdom, one everlasting kingdom that will never fall. And it is there that we must put our faith and our trust and find our security. Well, we have a lot to cover this morning. Let's go immediately to our text. And here we will find it beginning with the king of an ancient empire being awoken from a deep sleep by a troubling dream given to him by God Almighty. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn from limb to limb, and your houses shall be laid to ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For there is no great, great and powerful king has asked 
as such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So, he, so the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. May God bless the reading of his word. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter in the coming minutes before us. And as we begin, uh, we, want to, we want to see four truths that point to us the supremacy of God. Specifically, truths that point us to Him as the ultimate source of our security in this life and the life to come. And in the passage we just saw, the narrative opens from the outset showing us the ultimate deficiency of the world's wisdom. The ultimate deficiency of the world's wisdom. If you younger kids are taking notes, feel free to ask your parents how to spell that one. We read, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. You know, in the previous chapter, chapter 1, which if you were not here, you can go back and read uh, this afternoon, we were told how Daniel and his friends fared under the hand of God's blessing during their three years of training. How they received wisdom and they flourished. Uh, They even basically asked God for a miracle to sustain them physically. uh, And in fact, uh, God did that. He didn't just sustain them. He caused them to thrive both physically and mentally and spiritually. And so much so that they were the the cream of the crop for their class. But now, immediately when this time of testing is done, we enter chapter 2. And here is a threat, an immediate threat, not only to their uh, position in Babylon, but to their very life. The king has had a dream, and it's bothered him to the point that he can't sleep. We're not sure if he's asking for the content of the dream just to test them, or because maybe he can't remember. Sometimes you have dreams, you wake up, it's bizarre, and then then after a few minutes, it begins to fade, and you forget it, and you just think, man, I can't remember the details, but that was such a wild dream. Or perhaps it's just a test. Perhaps he remembers the dream, and he just wants them to prove that that they can know what it's about. He summons all of these people, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. You can imagine these guys as whatever the, the, the court uh, courier comes and says, hey, you're wanted before the king. Uh, he had a dream and he needs to know what it was in the interpretation. And they're like, okay, we're on, guys. And they begin straightening the robes. And perhaps some run over to the books and they're flipping through and, and, and maybe uh, reminding themselves of, of some of the technique of dream interpretation um, from, from past ages. You who are uh, college students having just gone to exams, perhaps you imagine these guys uh, as they're getting themselves together, perhaps putting on sashes and jewelry to show their authority and their position. We'd be saying, uh, having a little cram session in the hallways as, as, they're, as they're seeking to go before the king now with this task. All this time, they have, they have served the king well. In fact, they've served previous kings because surely... Nebuchadnezzar only having been in rule for three years, he is not, um, he's probably not brought on all new staff. He's probably, you know, it's not like the president, you know, we're going to get a whole new cabinet. These are the people who have been proven and tested for previous generations and previous kings. These are the wisest men in the land. They, they, they come into the throne room, they're confident, they're ready, and suddenly they're scared for their lives think, if nothing else, Nebuchadnezzar is wanting to test the wisdom of these advisors. He does not want to be hoodwinked. He does not want to be caught up into some scheme early in his reign as king. So he puts them to the test before he trusts their counsel. Don't just tell me what the dream means. 
you first need to tell me what the dream was. If you're really as smart as you say, if you really have access to the, the plane of spiritual existence that you claim to have, then you will be able to do this thing. And you can begin, and you can just imagine this guy standing there and the sweat beginning to form on the brow, making the underside of their beards itch as the, that the sweat begins to drip down. They're like, no, well, well king, just tell us the, the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. And, and the king begins a little more irritated. He says, no, that's not the deal. The deal is you first tell me what the dream is that I had, and then you tell me the interpretation. And in fact, he says, if you don't do this, you're goners. I, I will slaughter you and your family and burn your houses to the ground. He's quickly losing patience for them. He says, stop trying to play for time and just tell me what I want to know. Yet for all their vaunted wisdom, they are powerless to do what he wants. In, in fact, they say he asked, what he asked is impossible. There is no man on earth who can meet the king's demand, one of them says. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the kings of the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. The gods do not make their presence known with us, before us. They do not communicate with us on that level, O king. Therefore, there's no way anybody can answer this request. Red, blinding fury builds in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. His breathing quickens, his nostrils flare. We are told he becomes angry and furious and commands that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So we read the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. It's, it's amazing that assembled in that room that day was probably a group that might have been considered the wisest, most knowledgeable men in the known world at that time. They were the cabinet of advisors that had served the previous kings. Their records were tried and true. They were well-respected. They were well-fed. They were alive up to this point. They had always succeeded, and yet here they fail. And if you're looking at the outline, if you're taking notes, if you scan down, you'll notice there is this word ultimate in each of the words. It's not just there for fun or for filler. It's an important word because here's the reality. Sometimes, sometimes the wisdom of the world seems right. Sometimes they get it right. You know, someone has said all truth is God's truth. And sometimes what that means is you can just take whatever science and psychology say and it's, it's all right and true and we should incorporate it. No, that's not true. But it can mean this. If lost people, people who don't know God, happen to stumble upon truth, like maybe the theory of relativity or something, if it's true, then it's God's truth. They're not, they're not coming up with new truth. And so there is a time and there are seasons when even worldly wisdom appears right. It appears to work. But ultimately, in the end, it will always fail. Ultimately, it will always fail. It will ultimately be proven inadequate and deficient for showing the realities of life and giving the skill of navigating that life well. Of course, the wise men believed the request itself was unreasonable. Perhaps it was. But the point the author is trying to get us to see is that human wisdom is inherently flawed. Worldly wisdom is inherently inadequate because it's disconnected from God. In fact, that's that's their whole argument there. They have heaped judgment upon themselves because they have said, only the gods can answer what you have said, and we don't know them like that. They do not live among us as part of humanity. Therefore, we can't know what only they can know. 
this leads us to the second truth we want to see from chapter 2, and that is this, the ultimate superiority of the Lord's wisdom. The ultimate superiority of the Lord's wisdom. We pick up the, the story in verse 12. The king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now, it's hard to know the, the, the exact details of what happened here, but, I mean, if we just read the text at face value, it seems like, it seems to me like uh, old Nebuchadnezzar got mad. Well, actually, at this point, young Nebuchadnezzar probably. But he got mad. He got furious. And he said, off with their heads and literally called for his guard to take up swords and go seek out these guys and, and take them all out. He says, not just the guys in front of me. I want them all gone. All of them. Let's just start fresh and get rid of all these jokers because they don't know anything. And perhaps... Perhaps because they were from Israel, perhaps maybe they lived the farthest from everybody else. I don't know, but it seems like they start with Daniel and his friends. That Arioch and his, and his crew start there first. They burst in, sword is at hand, and I love Daniel's response. What's the hurry, dude? I mean, he play, I mean it's like, you know, Steve McQueen cool, you know? Uh, what's the rush? Why is this decree so urgent. In fact, it's more than just playing it cool. The text says he replied with prudence and discretion. Now, again, some of you uh, reading those words should have immediate connection in your mind. Because when you turn to Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, the introduction of the book, guess what you find? Prudence and discretion, the exact same words, are the fruit of a wise life. If you have wisdom that begins with the fear of the Lord, then you live with prudence and discretion. Daniel is not just playing it cool. He is acting wisely here. He isn't panicking. He isn't worried. He keeps calm and he delays the harsh word of the king, a word that was inherently unwise. I mean, I mean let's just be honest. When in any other context, you know, if you have, uh, you know, a, a platoon of men in the army and two or three of them screw up, do you court-martial the whole platoon? If you have a sports team and a couple of them uh, get caught up in, the high life and drugs and alcohol and make some stupid mistakes, do you kick the whole team out? No, you, you don't do that. You, you, you cut out the problem like a cancer and get rid of it. And you, you, bring, you bring new people in to take their place. And yet the king acts unwisely, doesn't he? Daniel, in contrast, acts wisely. He speaks with such prudence and skill that he evades death and even gains an audience with the king. I mean, think about that. We read over that so quickly, but think about what has just happened. The king has declared all of the wise men, all of the enchanters, all of the magicians, all of the Chaldeans, dead. And yet Daniel is not only able to stop himself and his friends from being killed, but is able to actually come into the king's presence and have an audience with him. That, my friends, is wisdom. That is skillful living and yet, and yet, Daniel doesn't know the interpretation of the dream. He doesn't know the answer that the king wants. He simply requests time to receive the answer. So what does he do next? He does what all, what all truly wise people do. He prays. Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. 
so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and thus said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king his interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No, wise man. Enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Now, first off, I just love how uh, Arioch here immediately takes credit for what's going on. I found from among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the interpretation, as if he had anything to do with it. Notice the contrast with Daniel. The king asks him, Can you tell me the interpretation? And you just, you just have to, again, you, you just think about not just the, the, the courage, but the wisdom. Daniel says, no. <laughs> you just imagine the king, why are you wasting my time then? No. No one can answer this. But there's a God in heaven who can. There is a God who reveals mysteries to mere mortals. Daniel makes it abundantly clear the wisdom he has is not his own. It is God's wisdom in his life. Daniel knows this and praises God for it when it comes to him in a dream. The second thing that wise men do, they they pray first and secondly, they worship. They worship. Daniel gives God the praise and acknowledges him as the very source of true wisdom. It is a wisdom that never fails. It is always superior to anything that the world has to offer. And again, this is something that is seen in an ultimate sense. In an ultimate sense. There There will be a time... Again, when in science and politics and even spirituality, what the world has to offer as wisdom will look right. But in the end, what we see is that the wisdom God gives is always proven true. Now, this has not only been my experience, but the experience of, of many, many others. In fact, there have been some people who have come into me, and they have sought advice, counsel, instruction. And I have said, this is what God's Word says to do. And for a time... They didn't buy it. So we, we need something else. Sometimes that was explicit. Sometimes it was implicit because they didn't go out and do the things that I said they should do. They relied on worldly wisdom, believing God's wisdom was not superior. And the result often was sin, disappointment, dissatisfaction. They were humbled in their wisdom, in the wisdom of the world. And they came back and they said, you know what, you were right. 
God's way is better. God's wisdom is better, and we were foolish to reject it. Ultimately, in the end, God's wisdom will always be proven to be superior. And what's required of us now is to humbly see that, that we might not fall to the temptation of worldly wisdom. As exalted as the situation and events being described here are, understand God's wisdom is not just for these great revelations of mysteries. What we'll see in just a minute is the amazing reality that Nebuchadnezzar has been shown to himself, not a godly man, not a man who would seek after the God of Israel, and yet God has revealed this amazing thing that will happen for centuries to come. But that's not all that God, that's not the, it's not the level that God's wisdom only operates on. It also operates on the nitty-gritty of everyday life. I mean, read through the book of Proverbs, the most evident and clear source of God's wisdom, and what you will see is it, it deals with the very earthly things, the everyday goings-ons of how we live. Therefore, God's wisdom is superior not just in the big things and the small things, it is superior in the way in which it encompasses all of life. What did God's wisdom reveal for Nebuchadnezzar? This is the third thing that we see. The third truth about God's, God's wisdom and power. In fact, if you go back to uh, what Daniel uh, prays uh, in, in verse 20, Blessed be the God, the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. That's the key verse for this chapter, really for the whole book. But for this chapter, God is superior in wisdom, He is superior in might, and He is willing to invite His people to participate in that. So the third truth that we see along those lines is this, the ultimate demise of the world's kingdoms. Here we see in Nebuchadnezzar's dream the ultimate demise of the world's kingdoms. Here Daniel reminds the king of what he has dreamed. Now if you're like me, you've had weird dreams before. Um, In in fact, uh, I probably have had, at least I remember probably more than you, because I never sleep right, and you're supposed to finish dreaming before you wake up, and I never do that. I, I sleep in a weird cycle, so I always wake up right in the middle of a dream. And sometimes it's a little jarring. One time, Melinda uh, woke me up, and my first question was, uh, are the kids still on spring break? Like, I mean, I, I just had no idea where I was. And, I, and sometimes I'm sitting having breakfast or in the shower, just thinking, what in the world was that supposed to be about? You know, you know, lay off the spicy pepperoni and pickles before bed or something. I don't know what it was, but it just, I was out there, bizarre. I read about one guy uh, in his little commentary. He talked about being a kid and having this, this recurring nightmare, he said it was for him. He was in an abandoned house being chased by uh, the rock band Kiss. And uh, I thought, you know, yeah, Gene Simmons is a little weird. I think I would, uh, I'd be scared of that too. I could relate to that. But frankly, nothing that we have dreamed probably compares to this. It is so otherworldly and so massive. You can imagine why the king lost sleep. You can imagine why he woke up and was unable to get anything else in his mind to get settled down, to get quieted. Listen to what it was, verse 31. You saw, O king, and beheld a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And when I dream, I dream about things I know. I dream about people and places. 
I mean, imagine Nebuchadnezzar in this dream. I mean, you got it's almost like Lord of the Rings kind of stuff. You know, he, you know, however he is, he, he, he becomes aware of this dream, and there is this vision of this image, probably an, an, an idol that is massive. I mean, it pictures something as tall as like the Empire State Building, just this, just this amazingly huge thing. And here he is, though the king of the greatest nation in the world, now just this tiny flea speck of a being in front of this thing. And he has no idea what it means. This, this blazing head of gold shining bright and glorious in the sun and then, uh, and then bronze and, and all the way down to all these things. And as he's trying to comprehend what in the world this thing means, here comes, here comes this stone that, that's said to be, be, be a pure stone. It's, it's not cut out from human hands. And then like a massive asteroid, this thing comes burning across the sky and, and like a bomb blows into the feet of this giant image bringing the whole thing collapsing down but not just into chunks and pieces it literally collapsed into dust that is blown away so that it's there's nothing left except this great stone and then the stone begins to grow and begins to grow and you can imagine nebuchadnezzar perhaps stepping back in the dream back in other what's going on and the stone grows until it is a huge mountain covering the whole earth i think i would wake up and need to go to the bathroom after something like that. I mean, you're just thinking, what in the world? What's going on? I've never seen anything like that. Somebody not experienced anything like that in this dream. What does it mean? God has told Daniel to tell Nebuchadnezzar, verse 36. This was the dream. Now we tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given Wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke it in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king. What shall be after this? The dream is certain as interpretation, sure. Now, much has been written about what these kingdoms represent. I think we just take it at face value. Uh, what Daniel said at the beginning, God has blessed Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, by showing him what is to come, by showing him the future. The vision begins with the description of all these things, and Daniel says these are all great kingdoms. All the parts of this image are great kingdoms. And I think, uh, as many have done, we just take them straightforwardly. We look at history. And we see what, what, were the, what were these kingdoms. And in fact, even some of the descriptions that are given predictively, we find uh, ringing true to uh, the, uh, the, the kingdoms and the empires that we would associate them with. So the vision begins with, a king, with the king's own kingdom of Babylon, the golden head at the top. Uh, frankly, when we get to the end, you'll understand then why he's so happy with this, this vision. Puts him as the top dog, as the most glorious thing in the world. 
But after that comes the chest of arms and silver representing the Medo-Persian Empire, which Daniel says will not be as great as the Babylonian Empire. Next we see the bronze section representing the Greek Empire. You know, it was said that Alexander the Great, as he was just a young man in his 20s, conquering people after people after people, he actually wept because there was no one else left to conquer for him. Finally, there is that kingdom represented by the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay, the Roman Empire. Daniel says this kingdom shall break and crush all these other kingdoms. That isn't surprising as it was said of Rome, they make a desert and call it peace. What does that mean? That means Rome, Rome wasn't for reconciliation. Rome was for annihilation. We make a desert and we say there's peace. In other words, we rule through complete and total domination. Notice that some of these kingdoms rule more extensively. The material that represents them becomes less valuable as time goes on. In fact, we even have where we literally get the, the common aphorism today, feet of clay. There is a decreasing glory that comes with each of these kingdoms. In part, I think we see just historically that this this is seen in the general decline of the moral and spiritual condition of each nation. Yes, they're all pagan. But there is a certain morality that is lost over time, even among the pagans, to the point that you get to the Roman Empire. And Paul's description of it in Romans chapter 1. And in fact, secular scholars will say it is from the moral corruption from within the empire that causes it to fall. All now makes sense and rings true. More than that, though, as we read the passage, the one thing, frankly, that we shouldn't do is get too caught up on those details. The, the point is not for us to think about the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and, and the timetables. That's not really the point. The point that is being made through Daniel is every single kingdom falls. All of them. doesn't matter how great, doesn't matter how glorious, they all fall. They are, though brought to the heights of power and seem at one time unstoppable, at eventually, ultimately, they all disintegrate. And that's true for every empire in the world. Every empire, every great nation in the world. Part of the application for that means this. Have you ever considered what the fall of America will mean? Even today, we are considered the last superpower in the world. And if history rings true, one day we will fall. America will shrivel up and die and be no more. They say, well, that's just impossible. Really? Just think about Great Britain. I mean, they once were this massive empire that stretched virtually halfway around the world. And yet now what are they? A shadow of their former selves. One day the United States will go the way of all flesh and die. And the question is, will that devastate you? Will that cause you? To, does that thought cause you to feel insecure? Does it cause you to worry and be filled with angst? Or do you have a vision of something greater that causes you to be sustained in that? When you hear one day America will fall, do you just say, it's rough. But I know there's something better. Because that's what God wants you to believe. That's the attitude he wants you to have. Regardless of what country we're in, whether it's America or China or the former Soviet Union, God desires that you have a vision of something greater, of a kingdom that is everlasting, that will never fall. His own kingdom. This leads us to the last thing we want to see this morning, the ultimate triumph of the Lord's kingdom. The ultimate triumph of the Lord's kingdom. 
It's interesting that while the vast majority of the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, and parts of Daniel written in Hebrew, parts of it are also written in Aramaic, which is the international trade language of the day. It's very interesting. Uh, in this chapter, verse 4, right after we read, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, boom, the language literally changes. You can go back to the, to, to the copies of the original text we have, Hebrew, 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 Aramaic, 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 all through chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 7. It's very artistic in the way it's done. In fact, it reminds me uh, of the movie The Hunt for Red October, if you've ever seen that or not. But at the beginning, all the Russians are speaking in Russian, you're reading English subtitles. And that was before, you know, subtitles were okay. And it, and it was kind of cool. And people are like, we've got to read subtitles the whole time, you know. Uh, and uh, they're having this conversation on the sub uh, in Russian, and uh, this guy's reading from this, um, I think it's a Hindu spiritual text, and he comes to a word that's the same in Russian as in English. And, and, and as he's reading, the camera focuses in, focuses in, focuses around his lips, and he says in Russian and English simultaneously, Armageddon. And then it begins to pull out, and suddenly he's talking in English. And you're like, whew, no more subtitles. This is great. And so for the rest of the movie, the Russians are, are speaking English. Even the captain who speaks English with the, with the Scottish accent. It's kind of weird. Uh, so, but it's the same thing's happening here. It, it, the text is started in Hebrew. This is written to Jews, by Jews. And yet it focuses in, and all of a sudden we're in Aramaic. What's going on? Well, these chapters especially deal with the folly and the impotence of of every nation and every kingdom under the wisdom and might of God. Yeah, that's, a, that's an encouraging thought for the Jews in their situation, but you know what? It's also, I think, a message to the world, even through Daniel, who was out in the world in Babylon, saying, you may be great, you may be mighty, but you need to know who's ultimately in charge. So what do we see in these verses? What do we see about the kingdom of God? What we see is every kingdom falls except for one, the last one. Listen again to how it's described, verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing force. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 44. Then in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom and shall be, that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut, a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation is sure. Now, first of all, again, think about the encouragement. This would have been to Daniel and his friends. Here they are. Uh, pulled out of the land, cut off from everything they knew, uh, serving a pagan king in a foreign land, and God says, hey, I ordained it. This happened because I said so, and it does not mean that I'm, gone, I'm a goner. It doesn't mean I'm now on the B list of, of international gods. I am still the all-sovereign. And one day, this kingdom will fall like all the others, but mine will never fall. That's got to be encouraging. That's got to be encouraging to them. Daniel sees that this kingdom begins with a stone, a stone that's uncut by human hands, a stone that begins breaking apart the kings of the world by breaking apart Rome and continues to grow into a massive mountain that covers the whole earth, reducing it to worthless ash. What is the stone? Well, it's not a what. It's a who. A stone is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself believed this. He explains 
to the chief priests and to the scribes in Luke chapter 20. He tells them a parable about how the kingdom of God is going to come and it's not going to be in an expected way. And he ends the parable by quoting from Psalm 118 and from our text here in Daniel 2. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. It is Christ who came to establish the kingdom of God in fullness. Even as Jesus taught in Luke 20, just verses before this, the kingdom was not established by military might but by the laying down of the king's own life on the cross. He died for sinners, bearing the penalty for their sins, so that through, though their, their own petty and vain kingdoms might be broken up and brought to nothing, they themselves would be saved. I think that's what Jesus means, the difference between falling on him and falling under him. If we throw ourselves onto Christ, desiring him, our lives will be broke apart. All that we have once cherished will be gone. To, to, to pray, as Jesus says, your kingdom come means my kingdom go away. Whatever little petty thing I want to hold on to and set up as a monument to myself, it is gone. And yet we ourselves are saved. Because here is this stone that came, and his own people, as we just read in John chapter 1, said, we don't want that. I don't think I'm the Messiah we want. We want, a, we want a king, we want a leader, we want a warrior. And Christ said, I am. I am all those things and more if you will simply see. Because by offering my life, I will achieve total victory over the one who has enslaved you, Satan himself. I will achieve victory over the punishment that is going to come for your sin, that you might be a holy people to God, a kingdom of priests. And that's exactly what he became. The stone that was rejected became the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. Likewise, though this kingdom began small and appeared pitiful and worthless, 70 Seventy untrained fishermen up on a mountain. Yeah, that kingdom of God has exploded and continued to grow throughout the ages and has not stopped growing and will not stop growing until the king returns, bringing heaven to earth and ending sin for all time. Christ is and will forever be the king of kings and the lord of ones, lords who rules over everything. Moreover, he is the very wisdom of God for his people. Daniel and his friends showed great wisdom even in these two chapters. And that wisdom can be ours in an even greater way. For in Christ, God's wisdom has taken on flesh. Again, I go back to the Chaldeans and I just say, what a great, what a great indictment of yourselves that is pointing forward to something you don't even realize. The thing the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. No longer true. God has taken on flesh. He has made his dwelling with humanity. He has walked among us. Why? That we ourselves might find in him, Paul says in Colossians, hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says in 1 Corinthians 1 that Christ became to us wisdom for God, righteousness and sanctification and wisdom. Thus, for us to be wise, for us to acquire and live by the wisdom of God, we must know God. And Christ has made that so much more than Daniel could ever imagine by becoming one of us. True, lasting, perfect wisdom comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. The passage ends with these words, Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this great mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors 
and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Loved ones, here's a blueprint for the rest of our lives. Not that we are seeking accolades from men and, and positions of high power, though that may come to some. But as we wait for the fullness of God's kingdom, as we await for the dwelling that will not end, in a dwelling that will one day end, waiting for an everlasting kingdom, even as we are part of a kingdom that is on its way out, we don't hold up in the church. We don't hold up in a gospel ghetto, never going out to anybody else, ignoring the sin and the destruction and the devastation and the rot that is going on around us. Instead, by faith, we launch out into the world just like Daniel did. Daniel could have closed himself up. He could have surrounded himself with friends and said, I don't want anything to do with Babylon. And that's not what he did. In fact, he took the opportunity to be exalted right up into the palace itself to have an effect. Likewise, we are called to launch out into the world by faith, giving glory to God for all that he has done through Christ, striving to make his name known and his grace known among the nations that they too might enjoy the wisdom and the security of the salvation God offers. In all of this, we strive, even under the threat of difficulty and suffering, by trusting Jesus, the God of God's Father, we are so thankful for this passage that draws us right into your very character, your very nature as the all-wise and all-sovereign God. Father, you, you call us to be your people, not just as servants, but even as friends. Through Christ, we not only have forgiveness of sins, but adoption as sons. God, you invite us to partake of this wisdom with you, to enjoy the security of your sovereign hand over all things even as we go across the street and into the cities and around the world, living and serving for you alone. Oh God, make us a people like Daniel who trusted you, who trusted you and knew you so well and was able to acquire the wisdom to make your name great, even among a pagan nation like Babylon. Father, as we live in a modern-day Babylon, a country that does not know you, a country that takes every opportunity to mock you and to rebel against you, Father, make us to have faith in you. Make us to have courage, not because we're special, but because you are the God of gods and the King of all lords. Father, you are the one who raises up kings and brings them down. You are the one who establishes kingdoms and brings them to nothing. Father, you are sovereign God who took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and made yourself known to us through the humility that came in offering your life for sinners. And yet, Father, what a victory over sin, death, hell, everything that would keep us from you. God, the amazing way in which with wisdom that defies every imaginable wisdom of man, you established a kingdom that is growing and will one day consume this entire world with the glory of Christ. Father, help us to see that now and to live in light of it today. Today. We ask all these things by faith in the glorious name of your Son, Jesus our Savior. Amen.